we've talked about this subject of how we got here, which is how we got where we are in our culture today and in what people are thinking and why they're thinking like they're thinking. I had a call on the radio this morning from a lady. I don't know if she's ever called before or not. I don't think so. Maybe she has. And she was basically saying that the church has failed to be nice enough to people or to uh, teach people in the right way, and that's why people are so antagonistic. And I, I understand what she, I agree that we are called very specifically, and I mentioned some verses about this, to treat people with gentleness and humility. But I did disagree, and I do appreciate her call, but I did disagree and said so on the air, that the real problem today is that Christians haven't been nice enough. I don't think that's the problem. That, that's not why there is such a cultural divide between Christians and society and between the main leaders of our society and conservative Christians. I don't think the reason is because we haven't been nice enough. Should, can't, could we have done better? In many, yes, of course. But the real reason are the things that I'm talking about in this, these lessons. The philosophical changes that occurred <coughs> centuries ago when man began to believe that he should be independent from God and that there was no way to communicate to God. And we got here through a series of logical steps down through time to the current place where we are. Hopefully, in some things that we discuss in this, uh, in these lessons, you can see why it is that things are, even from the idea we talk about this, why are people uh, dyeing their hair weird colors? I see, there I go again. Weird, wrong word. Uh, unusual colors. Is that better? I don't mean to imply people are weird because they have, you know, purple hair. Could be, but that's not a sign. Or why do we find that have such a need to tattoo ourselves? or to do things that we do. Why is that? That's just one tiny thing. The reason, there are reasons why that is a cultural phenomenon. All, none of these things happen in a vacuum. And what I showed you, and we'll turn to the Scriptures in just a moment, but what I showed you in the previous lessons is that the truth is the Scriptures present man as he is. Not man as people conceive him today in the world around it. And the trouble is, a lot of Christians have bought into the ideas of what the world says about man himself. That we all got here by evolution, therefore we're basically animals. That we're just a part of nature. And we all got to get in that circle of life. And we're all going to die. And mushrooms are going to dissolve us. And we're just back into the stream of nature. And that's why we like things like cremation, for example. Because it speeds up that process. That's part of what I think, anyway. And we just return to nature. We can scatter that dust wherever we want. And now everybody, Uncle Joe, is back in the circle of life. But the scriptures present man as he is. It's not wrong to be cremated either, by the way. So you don't get upset about that. We talk about that in the Bible class. But man is wonderfully made. And he's made in the image of God. That is a significant truth that is revealed to us in the scriptures that changes everything about how we look at the issues of the current day and has in the past changed the way people look at things. But the Scriptures also teach that man is a sinner and he's living in an upside-down world because since the time of the Garden of Eden, man's living in an upside-down world where things aren't always as they should be. Man has to struggle. Life punishes good people and rewards wicked people sometimes. And we talked in another previous lesson about why that is, this upside-down world. But we're living in that world, 
And we're a sinner living in that world, and we contribute to the problem being upside down ourselves, in spite of the fact that we're wonderfully made. And so we see that God has this idea that he says about man in, in Hebrews chapter 2, quoting the Old Testament, Psalm 8, What is man that you're mindful of him, or the son of man that you take care of? What is man? The Bible asks that question. Well, I'll tell you what the Bible says. It says, You have made him a little lower than the angels. A very high position, because the angels are an exalted position as creatures, the spirit creatures that are far greater than human beings. When people meet angels in their somewhat their truest form, they fall down as one is dead because angels are so powerful and magnificent. You made man a little lower than that, but you've crowned him with glory and honor. That is not what modern man says about man. What, what science teaches you, if we're going to say we can only believe what science can tell us, what you can get by a double-blind study or under a microscope, if you're going to believe only that about man, what is man? Well, he's not that much different than a mushroom. Just a more complex organism. But there isn't any qualitative difference between the mushroom, the orangutan, and the man. There's no qualitative difference between those two. In fact, we keep, find, we keep trying to convince ourselves that even the animals like orcas and whales and, and uh, bonobo monkeys are just as smart as human beings. We've even come to the point today where we've begun to convince ourselves that robots and artificial intelligence are as smart as human beings and as good as human beings. In fact, we're all afraid they're going to replace us. I, I'm not afraid of that. Why am I not afraid of artificial intelligence and robots? Because of this verse. That's why I'm not afraid of that. But a secular man who doesn't believe what this says about human beings should be afraid of robots because he has nothing else to depend on. He should be afraid of bondable monkeys taking over or whatever. He says, you've given him glory and honor. You put all things under his feet. And it says, yes, and although it says there's something not in subjection to man, and that's death. But then the important words in verse 9 of Hebrews chapter 2, but we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste of death for everyone. Yes, man is a magnificent creature living in a fallen world as a sinner. He brought upon himself the wrath of God, and yet God, in his grace, has given us Jesus to correct that problem and taste of death for everyone. This is the eternal message of the Scriptures that completely changes the way we can see man and the world we live in. And if you have this view, understanding, even if it's imperfect understanding of this, your outlook on the world around you should be completely different than your overeducated neighbors who reject all of this because they're so educated. And what it says here that this happened by the grace of God gives you another whole perspective, something about God. God is not a volcano erupting. God is not a, a magnificent star. God is not the trees and the landscapes. He's not that. God is a personal being beyond all of our comprehension who is not just a force of nature. He's not gravity. He's not electromagnetism. He's not thermonuclear energy. He's none of those things. He's a person who can extend grace. That's a big difference. I didn't say he was a human, but I said he was a person. And he's made you in his image. 
And so this is an extremely important thing. And what happened was, historically, you have grace, the higher thing that people used to understand, of a creator, of heavenly things, of the unseen world, and man's spirit is in this grace, higher level. And then you have the created world around us, nature that we see, and all the earthly things, visible things, even man's body. Man's spirit is in the unseen. Man's body is in the seen world. And what's happened because of man's rejection of the authority of God is that this upper story has been eliminated as a source of any true knowledge whatsoever. All that's left is nature below. Nothing else in the upper world Upper story can be there, and what you, what happens in this case is that there's no place for man to be significant. There's no place for human beings to have any significance at all, because as I said, we're no different than a caterpillar, because we are made of the same things and we end up in the same place. And if the upper story is gone, that's all there is. There's no place for morals, uh, morality. There's no place for truth, because even if you say, well, we have morals today, but all that means is we passed a law or we agreed on something. But there's no real morals. It's only in what people can pass by legislation. That can change tomorrow. Or what we all agree on, and that can change tomorrow. So there's no real morals. And there's no real truth anywhere. It's only your truth and your truth and my truth. That's all the kind of truth there is. And so man is adrift. There's no Man is completely adrift in his own thoughts. You see, I ran across this picture last week. I could get together hundreds of these kind of pictures if I wanted to look for them. You see this picture? And it shows you down here. It says, uh, you live here. Shows you the sun and the planets. And you live here. Is that true? Is that picture true? It is true. Is it true, though? It's not true. Because the message it's conveying to you is that you are insignificant. That's the message of this, of this picture. If it were conveying just an astronomical truth, that'd be one thing, but this is not the point of this picture, is it? You ever seen anything like this before? Of course you have, all over the place. The message here is that man and human beings living on the earth are insignificant, and we're just about to destroy the only place we can live. Well, we say that anyway, because strangely enough, we think we're powerful enough to destroy this world, but we're also insignificant. And we live in a tiny place and a tiny speck of the universe, and that's all there is. That message is true, and it's also not true. In the most important sense, it is a lie telling you that you have no significance. What does the Bible say about your significance? That you're just a speck in the universe that means nothing? No, the Bible is completely opposite of it. It tells you that you are made in the image of God, and God came and could die for every single one of you, sent his son to die for you, because he wants you to live with him forever. So this picture doesn't tell the whole truth. It might illustrate this. We haven't even got to the real message of some of these lessons, this personal, infinite God. See, God is not the God that you see in pagan thinking, like, um, now I forgot the name of it. I want to say Willow. That's one. Go back to all these fictional movies. What's the one where all the people are green with pointy ears, swinging through the trees in the foreign place? Nobody knows. Huh? Avatar. Yes, there you go. I knew it was an A. Avatar. It's not that. That this world we live in is this just a part of all of nature. No, God is a personal God. He's like us because we made us like Him. 
He's not like us. Actually, we're like him. I got that backwards. But the point I'm making is there's a there's a connection between God and man that is not about the material. But he's also infinite. He is not like us. And so on the one side, you see between the personal infinite God, there's this chasm between everything else in the universe. The angels, the man, the animals, the plants. And the there's this chasm between this God who is personal and infinite. And all the gods of the pagans and all the modern gods, whatever we're going to put forth, are not a personal God and they are not infinite gods. They don't have that combination, which the Bible says the God of heaven does. On the other side, though, you see, here's the, you see the, the real truth that helps us. That side doesn't help us as much except to worship this God of the universe. It's not being made with men's hands. We'll come to that in a moment. But on the other side, you see that between this infinite God and the, there, is, there are angels and men above this chasm. And below the chasm, there's this uncrossable void between the animals, plants, and the machines. You belong on the God side on that part of the truth. And that's an important, overwhelming kind of truth. And so what has happened is, since man eliminated this upper story altogether in his thinking in the last 500 years throughout the world of any kind of a, of a modern world, all that's left is nature. And what people began to realize is this isn't enough. We, we were trying, what they were trying to do is find some universal principle in the lower story in nature that would tie everything together, make all everything make sense and fit together, give a place for man. Leonardo tried to paint it. He didn't paint very much because he couldn't paint it. And he finally gave up. And many of them died optimistic that somebody would find this one unifying principle. And Einstein thought he had it. Other, other people thought they had it. But they haven't been able to find it. And so in the last century and a half, human beings have kind of given up. But what's come out of philosophy and religion is then this a leap of faith. What we're being told and have been told all of my lifetime is that in order for man to be significant, you have to take a leap of faith. That here on the natural world you have evidence and facts and knowledge. But in order to get any significance, you have to take a leap of faith into the unknown. Just, just believe. Have you ever heard Christians say, just believe? As if believing in your faith is something you just do. You don't have any thought behind it. There's no rational reason why you should believe in Jesus Christ and the resurrection. You just make a leap of faith. That idea did not come from the Bible. And I hear Christians repeat this in various forms all the time. That idea did not come from the Bible. That came from human philosophy. Because the Bible says we believe about the resurrection, which we can't see because we have historical evidence of the resurrection of Christ. And he gave us the eyewitnesses of that evidence in that resurrection. And so we have a belief in what we can't see based on what we can see. It's not a leap of faith to be a Christian. And we have evidence of a lot of things like that. But this leap of faith can take many forms. And in our lifetime, for example, it's taken the forms, for example, of mind-altering, mind-numbing drugs. That's how pe people like Timothy O'Leary, anybody old enough to remember Timothy O'Leary and the LSD thing back in the 60s and 70s and, and all these other people, all the rock stars, some of them knew what they were doing, some didn't. Jim Morrison is one who knew what he was doing. Jim Morrison is revered. His grave, they have to hide his grave because so many people try to go to Jim Morrison of the Doors grave because they view him as a spiritual figure. What's the matter? It's not showing. 
Oh, this is the most perfect slide ever made, you know. I don't know why it's not showing. One second. We'll start over. What I was saying is this. What we've seen in our lifetime, and I'll put the chart up here in a minute and we can get this back going again, is that we see a lot of things that to Christians, especially like in my parents' generation, even some of us older ones, it didn't make a lot of sense. Why were all these young people, especially from universities in the 60s, taking all these mind-altering drugs? Why were they going on a trip? Why, would they, why did they want to go on a trip? Were things so bad that they had to go on a trip to escape? No. They were trying to feel like they meant something. They were trying to find some reality, something that was worthwhile in their world because the education they were getting by these secular people who didn't believe in the upper story at that time, even in the 60s, was telling them they had no significance. And so by taking a leap of faith, according to Kierkegaard and, and some other philosophers of the time, Heidegger and others, they were authenticating themselves. And we've seen this continue down through uh, two or three decades now. They were authenticating themselves so that they could figure out if they actually meant something, so they could see that the, if they actually were worthwhile or that they made any difference in the world. What really was going on is that people had come to see that man had no significance and do they make any difference? So they thought taking a little trip with drugs would do that for them. Now we might be able to get going here again. Does it? Did it? Today, people do all kinds of other things to find. I think we see the same thing in a very demented, uh, terrible way in serial killers. Why is it that, from what we can tell, serial killers are kind of a modern phenomenon, relatively modern in the 20th century? I know we had Jack the Ripper back there um, years ago, but why is it that Serial killers are a mo hang on one second. I do one more thing. A modern phenomenon. Well, it's because some people find that they can authenticate themselves by doing something like killing other people. You know, when they proposed this act of authentication of, of self empowerment, um, even the philosophers who proposed this would say to you that. Yes, you can do, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, you can help an old lady across the street, and by doing that, you prove that you really exist, that you really are important. Or you can run her down with your car. Either one would do the same thing. How do you know which one you should do? Well, you don't, because there's nothing up there to tell you this. It's what you choose. It's what you choose. Is not this idea that you get to have the power over life and death is that not a modern... Have you heard anything about this recently, even in our culture? That if you're a woman, you have the authenticating power of choosing life over death, and no one can tell you what to do about that. This is, a, this is why this appeals to so many people, because it's an act of authentication. I really am uh, significant. And so mind-numbing, mind-altering drugs do that. Pornography, the experience of the pleasure of pornography. Especially since some people view this as being a negative thing, you get to authenticate yourself by joining in this. And so now we, we proudly participate in pornography. Even our middle school girls and boys are participating in this by sending nude pictures back and forth and celebrating this. This is, this is a very free act to these folks. Why is it so appealing? 
Because it's a freeing act of, of self-importance. And that's where all the tattooing and the marking and all the other things come in. The abandonment of reason and irrationality. You just go and you do absurd things. We have a whole theater in France called the Theater of the Absurd, a whole movement where they have dogs, people walking around on stage and all fours barking. And this is a play that you can go, go pay to see, and it's an irrational act. And all, or paintings. What's the name of that painting I read about? Oh, I can't think of what it is. And, and uh, Francis Schaeffer, was, one of his students, was telling him about this uh, movie he had seen and a painting and a movie he had seen, and he said, I've been to it you know, 20 times trying to understand what the meaning of this movie is. And so Schaefer went to see it and he's come back and he said, well, you, you could see it a thousand times. You'll never know because it has no meaning. The whole purpose is that it doesn't have any meaning. Picasso tried to paint the abstract and reduce people to their things to their simplest forms. And so he made just shapes on a canvas, abstract shapes. And it worked. He could communicate something universal, except he couldn't communicate anything. Because he abandoned words. Words won't work. See, in linguistics now, we have the idea in universities that words don't mean anything. Why is it in our society now what we're seeing down at the popular level is that all the definitions of all the words are all changing and we don't even know what a woman is? Why is that? It's not an accident. It's, it's not just somebody trying to be funny. Words don't actually have meaning because there's nothing above man that defines any word. And so, to real philosophers, there's almost no use talking, except they do. They write books, logically trying to convince me that there's no logic. They write a book trying to convince me that logic and rationality don't exist, and they try to make rational arguments to convince me of that. What is that not absurd on its face? But that's where we are intellectually in a lot of places. Uh, so the, the, this ultra-individualism, I'm for individual responsibility in society. I believe people ought to be held accountable for the choices that they make. I'm for that. I believe the best thing you can teach young men and young women is to have responsibility for the things they do and hold them accountable for their choices so they can change and grow and become useful, useful moral people. But that's not the same thing as this rank individualism that just simply says... I can do whatever I want. If I want to be, I'm born a man, but if I want to be a woman, I'll be a woman. Or I'll be a tree. Whatever they want to be. Is that where we are today? People just asserting, I'm going to change what I am. This is rank individualism of this same thing. So man's attempt at knowledge and meaning leads him to this leap of faith. And most people that participate in this down the common level on Instagram don't know that this is where they are. But what they're showing you, if you look at it, what you're seeing when you see a lot of people's lives today as they display them on social media to you and as they display them to you on the sidewalk is that they don't think they have any significance outside of this individual display of something that's absurd or shocking to you. And so you get then this leap of faith into this. When man and man makes an attempt to have knowledge and meaning, it ends up going into this area up here. Because he can't. Can you find meaning in science? You can't. And I've taught, I know people think, oh, you're anti-science. I'm not anti-science. I'm for science being science. Not for, because I know this though. 
Science and laboratories and all that cannot give you meaning. It can't, they can't answer the things that every human that's ever lived wants to know, really needs to know. Does life make any difference? Why am I here? Where am I going? Why is there suffering? What is love? Can science show you what love is? I have on my Facebook, top of my Facebook page, the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. I like that. That's right. But you know, in science, that's a meaningless statement. It makes no, if on the basis of science, that's a meaningless, foolish statement. What does it mean to love and be loved in return? How is that the greatest thing? Only makes sense if there's a real God in heaven who made me in his image, made other people in his image, and showed me how to love them and be loved. Showed them how to love them. It only makes sense in that context. So that's why you come up with then this idea that God is dead. There is no God uh, as such that we know. He's dead in that sense, that there's no meaning in the universe, and that all that's left is irrationality. Now, this is not just something that a sophomore in college would say. This is what the top philosophers and thinkers of the last couple of centuries have come to. This is where we are. And so they debate in their little uh, academic forums some of these things, but in the end, this is what is. And so on the bottom story, once you get rid of that top story, then on the bottom story what you end up with is that man is dead as man. Man is just an animal. Not even a good animal. He's a destructive animal. It alarms me when I hear so many people say, I, I like animals, I hate people. It alarms me because I know that's part of it. It's part of this. Part of this idea that humans are not only just animals, they're the worst kind of animals. You ever hear that? Oh, yeah. Humans are the worst animals because they actually kill other animals, other people. And they eat animals and they destroy the world. So we're dead. Man is dead. And man has no meaning beyond the fact that he lives for a few years and dies. Now here's the problem. Every one of these people, including all the people in this audience, we truly were made in the image of God. We truly were made in God's image. And we just can't really accept that. And so we keep struggling to make this leap of faith to find some meaning. We can talk about having no meaning... But we all know in our heart of hearts that we don't want to be that way and it shouldn't be that way. So here are some consequences of this. In religion, what you find is that Jesus, the word Jesus, I have in quotes because the word Jesus can mean anything. The person who called today, and I, I like what she said, but what she said was if people would just love each other like Jesus did, then everything would be fine. Define Jesus for me. Is Jesus the Jesus that Kamala Harris says loves abortion the other day? Is that the Jesus we're talking about? Is he just a pot-smoking hippie? A Marxist revolutionary? A homosexual lover of John? Or a fornicating lover of Mary Magdalene? Which Jesus are we talking about here? You see, I, I can tell you which Jesus I'm talking about because I can open up a book and, and read about that Jesus and I know what kind of man he was and what he stood for and what he said. He's a real thing because I believe he really lived in history. Really lived and really came from God in space and time. But in, in modern religion, if you take away the upper story and you take away the revelation of God, Jesus can mean anything. So Jesus gets used by unbelievers all the time to tell believers what the Bible says isn't true. Is that what they're doing with Jesus today? 
They're using Jesus to tell you what Jesus said in the Bible isn't true. How do you like that? And Jesus can mean anything once you disconnect it from Revelation. The word Jesus means anything. So be careful. And God means anything. People use the word God a lot. I've told you before, my uh, more my mentor, Melvin Curry, got his Ph.D. from Florida State University back in the 70s. The head of the Department of Theology at Florida State University was an atheist, a Jewish atheist. Head of the Department of Theology, teaching people about God at University of Florida State University. was an atheist. Now, I'm not singling out Florida State, although I don't root for them. But I'm not singling them out because that's probably true all across the country. That kind of thing. In 1902, Thomas Huxley, T.H. Huxley, a famous agnostic and atheist, said in prophecy, I'm not quoting this, but I'm summarizing it, that there will come a time when men would remove all content from faith, and especially the scripture before Abraham. All real meaningful content would be removed from faith, and all you have the word faith is taking that leap. Anybody can just have faith because they can all take the leap that they want that suits their own background and person. They can take this leap. And so you have to remove all content from the Bible. Otherwise, if you don't remove all meaningful words from the Bible and say, this is what it is, it's this and not this, then if, as soon as I say that, that the truth is this and not this, then I've excluded some people. Haven't I? Naturally, I've excluded them because they won't believe it. They don't want that to be that way. And so he says there's coming a time when, because of our philosophy of the upper story being gone, that there's going to be no content in faith. He said no longer in, uh, in contact with fact of any kind. Faith now stands and forever proudly, forever proudly inaccessible. I'm sorry, I misspelled that word. Inaccessible to the attacks of the infidel. What he's saying there is this. So long as I say that Jesus Christ lived in the first century A.D. in Judea, was an actual human being, he died and was put to death by the Romans and rose the third day. When I say something like that, I can be attacked. That's historically inaccurate. That's impossible. Never happened. It's a myth. It's a fiction. Whatever you want to say. And that's the attacks that infidels have made against plain, simple facts of the gospel. But once you take all the facts away and you have these intellectual preachers, supposed preachers telling you that it doesn't really matter if Jesus actually lived or not, doesn't really matter if he was really raised from the dead or not, as long as you believe something. Do you not hear this every Easter and every Christmas? That it's okay as long as whatever you believe about Jesus is true. It doesn't matter if he really lived or really died. That's what they're, this is what they're saying. But So once you take him out of history, can infidels attack that anymore? Well, no. You can believe that as well as you can anything else. You want to believe in the tooth fairy? That's fine. You want to believe in Jesus rising from the dead? That's fine. Nobody can, You can't be attacked. Now, he kind of viewed this as a positive thing, even though he was an agnostic. But really, it's the destruction of Christianity. And the same thing happens in morality then. If there's nothing in the upper story that God is who he is, and because he's who he is, lying is wrong. The character of God asserts by its own nature that lying is wrong, for example. Because God cannot lie. And if you take everything out of that upper story, there's no categories of knowledge up there, 
then what's left to decide what's right or wrong? Well, what do we have today? How is morality decided today by most people? Even a lot of Christians will come up with this. When you're talking about something like divorce, they'll say, well, most people say this about divorce. Most people agree with this. Most people agree with that. Or whatever something it is. Most churches today call themselves Christian churches. Committing fornication, living together before marriage, is not a problem in that church. Because the majority of people think it's okay. Have they gone to the... Because there's nothing in the upper story to say it's not. As long as the majority of people believe it. What's our morality in the United States today? Whatever the majority says. In fact, uh, what's her name from the White House says that if you, if you, the majority of people agree with something, anybody who disagrees is, is an extremist. That's what they said last week. So if you don't go along with the majority or whoever's powerful, that's all that's left. It's just whatever people agree on. I had a discussion with a fellow on the radio in Miami some years ago on a talk show. I probably told you a story before, but bear with me just for a moment. He was a professor from the University of Miami. And he was his premise, he wrote a book called Christianity is Immoral, something like that. Christianity is Immoral, and it's rude. And so I called him up, and I was talking with him about this. And I said, so can you tell me why it was wrong for Adolf Hitler to kill six million Jews? Can you tell me why that's wrong? And he stumbled on, He stumbled with that question based on what he told me before. He said, well, it was, it was illegal. I said, do you really think it was illegal? It wasn't illegal. It was perfectly legal to do what he did. And I said, what if I come down there to the station, this is hypothetical now, put a, put a 38 revolver in your temple, and I say, give me one reason why I shouldn't pull the trigger. Can you tell me, sir, why I shouldn't pull the trigger? Of course, today they track you down and arrest you for that, but I, this was in the 80s, maybe the 70s. Can you give me a reason? And the other host says, well, that's a good question. Since you don't believe in God, can you give him a reason? Uh, he, he stumbled with that. Well, it would be illegal. I said, yeah, but who, who says it's illegal? Just a bunch of people sitting in some law house somewhere say it's illegal? What do I care if it's illegal? Can you tell me if it's right or wrong? Can you tell me it's wrong for me to pull that trigger? And the answer eventually was no. He couldn't tell me why. I said, here's the difference between me and you. I, I said, I can tell you why, as, as an immoral Christian, according to you, I can tell you why it's wrong for me to pull that trigger. Because you're made in the image of God, and God gave me no right to do such a thing as that. That's why I won't pull the trigger. But you have no reason, especially if a majority of people agree with you, that it's okay to pull the trigger. You do it. This is, and this is where we are today. We have a lot of fancy decorations on what we call morality, but there's nothing real there. That's all that's left. Whoever is in power, whoever is the most powerful, whoever has the most people on their side, that's what's right or wrong. And this is where we are. And so today, the, to attack somebody, you don't say what their position is wrong. You say most people don't agree with them. They're in a minority. They're an extreme group. That's how you prove somebody should be shunned, just because they're in extreme, meaning that they're not with the majority. Do you ever notice that? That's how people argue today. Not that it's wrong. Their, their position is incorrect. Since law is just an extension of morality, then we're a step or two at any time from the law of the jungle. 
law and morality are just a step apart. The law is just the reflected general morality of the people of any, pl any place and time. That's what they make as laws. And as long as we have nothing above men to make the laws, then we're back at the jungle. The strong eat the weak. There's this picture, there's painting in Switzerland. Don't know if it's still up. It's called Justice Instructs the Nations, or the Judges, some people say. So here are all the judges. And there's disputes going on down the foreground below. You see disputes over marriage and property and law that's going on. Apparently what this painting is. And here are the people going to decide what they should do. And here is Lady Justice. Un no blindfold in this case. And she's got a sword and she's pointing to something down below. You can't see here. That says the law of God. She's pointing these judges to the law of God for them to make their decision. This is an absurdity today. The idea that the judges or justices should look to the law of God to decide what's right or wrong to do before they decide what they're going to do. Now, we have Lady Justice blindfolded holding the scales, and the meaning is different. It means there that he, she should not be partial to who's before her, and I agree with that picture, but that's the problem with this, is because the consequences are terrible. In, in metaphysics, that's the idea of what man is and who man is and how we know how things ought to be. In this situation we're in today, man loses the possibility of understanding the problem of evil. What's the problem of evil? Well, we talk about it all the time. Why do good people suffer? Why do wicked people get, go scot-free? Why do bad things happen to innocent people? Why will children get diseases and die? We struggle with this. All of us struggle with some form of this problem in our life and the lives of others around us. It's called the problem of evil. And so this is often thrown up by unbelievers as evidence against God. The problem with that is that if you remove God from the equation, there is no answer to the problem of evil. Once you remove God, here's a young woman that's been sexually abused and, and mistreated horribly and abused by a preacher, for example. I've seen a case of this. And because of this, she loses faith in God and, does, and says, I don't believe in God. The answer to her is this. Without God, you have no way to even object to what that preacher did to you. You have no way to say it's right or wrong what he did. Without God. With God, he's condemned, whether he's a preacher or not. Because of what God says. So don't give up on God when you face evil in the world, when you face injustice. God is the only answer that you have to that problem of evil. Because what the Bible says about that is that in space and time, in history itself, there's a historic fact that Adam and Eve, made in God's image, rebelled against him. And because of that rebellion against him, that they that they ended up showing their children as it went on, that that. It's wrong what happened. The world turned upside down. Man is, as we say, fallen. Man's a corrupted creature in that he doesn't often know what's right and certainly doesn't want to do what's right because he's in rebellion to God. Now, this explains the problem of evil so much, so much of it. And it introduced death into the world. Baudelaire, a French philosopher, said here, because he didn't believe in God, if there is a God, he is the devil. Why? Why would he say such a thing as that? Well, because if there's a God, if you don't have the Bible account, if you don't have the revelation of Scripture about God's nature and man's sin, if you don't have those two 
things there before you, God does look evil. He made man, so he's going to do this, and then he punishes him for doing it. Archibald MacLeish, a British playwright, said, If he is God, he cannot be good, and if he is good, he cannot be God. Hmm. Well, if you don't believe in the Scriptures, that makes sense. That makes sense. But if you understand what the Scriptures say about this historic fact of the fall and of man's creation, then that's a nonsense statement. All right, our time has gone today. We need to stop. I've got <clears throat> hmm, several more slides, but we'll, we'll pass on those this morning. I do want you to, we're going to conclude, though, this morning quickly by reading some Scripture. And I want you to then see something about the nature of man in this that will help you. And then we're going to close with a song of invitation. Paul told the people on Mars Hill, those Greeks, in, about the nature of the true God. And although these Greeks didn't believe in what he was saying at first, did not have any true knowledge in their culture of the God of heaven, here's what Paul told them. God, who made the world and everything in it, there's that creation. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he controls both the upper and lower stories. He does not dwell in temples made with hands. He's not some god of, of wood or stone or the mountains or the hills or whatever it is. He, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. Can't give God anything since he's far above you. And he gives to all life, all men, whether they're Jews or not or Greeks or not, he gives all men life and breath, and all things. And he is made from one blood, every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth. An important principle about how we should treat each other and how we should view each other. And he's determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him. And people have been seeking the Lord all throughout history, all throughout the Renaissance, these men were seeking for God, but they looked in the wrong place. They threw away the one thing that could teach them about God, the revelation that God gave us. They threw that out early in the Renaissance, and therefore they can't find God. He's not far from any one of us. See what I told you before? Even these atheists, they're still made in God's image, so they're seeking what's above. He's not far from you. For in him, he says, we live and we move and we have our very being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we all his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like silver or gold or stone or something. It's not just material. The world is not just material. Something shaped by art or man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent and to turn away from that fruitless endeavor of seeking the world without God. Because he's appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. And he has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul goes right back from the creation then to the resurrection and says, your seeking of God without looking in the scriptures and with the historic facts is fruitless. So I want to turn to, I want you to understand that very same thing. What God has done, what he commands today is that all men everywhere should repent. Which means to turn away from where you have been going and your way of thinking and come to the Lord. We offer you a chance to do that this morning as we close this sermon by singing a song. We're going to sing a song. And during that song, if you would like to respond to the Lord by seeking His forgiveness for your sins as a Christian, come, we'll pray with you. If you'd like to seek the Lord this morning by casting your life with Him, being baptized in His name, becoming a servant or child of God, you